Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Sporting Voices podcast with me, Steve Hoare. I'm delighted to say I'm joined this week by football commentator Derek Ray, who's joining us from the early hours of the morning over in America. So first of all, Derek, thank you for getting up early and, uh, and agreeing to join us with the time differences. Um, I'm going to start straight away. I'm going to ask you, obviously you're based in America now, can you just explain to us how a football commentator from Scotland ends up moving to America and becoming a you know, an internationally known commentator on both sides of the Atlantic. How did all that come about? Because it's, it's quite a, a unique situation. I'd say you don't hear that very often. Well, hello, Steve, first of all. Thank you very much for the invitation at this relatively early hour here <laughs> in the Boston area. But I am an early riser, so no problems on that front. It's a long story, really. Um, maybe I should take you back to my early days working for BBC Scotland in Glasgow. And I did that for five years. I was very lucky to get the chance to work for BBC Scotland at a young age, from the age of 19 on. And, um, you know, highly unusual. But I thoroughly enjoyed my five years and got to do an awful lot in that five-year period. Got to go to 19 different countries to follow Scottish teams in Europe at the time. But when you're young, you're sometimes a bit restless. And I was restless to try something new and different. And that ended up being the USA. And I'd had this fascination with how things were done in the US on the sports side, particularly with our sport, because it was very much at its fledgling stage at that point. It was going to host the World Cup in 1994. And as a young single person at the time, I decided on a whim in 1991, I was moving to America and I was moving here to the Boston area. Now, little did I know that I was going to land a job as the press officer for the Boston venue for World Cup 1994, working for the World Cup organizers. So that gave me a, a great introduction to life in America, to sporting life in America, to football life in America, because as I said, it really wasn't well developed at that point. And again, to try to cut a long story short, I met Beth around that time, who uh, is my wife, been married since 1996. And ESPN at that stage were coming along with international football as part of the programming. And I became part of that eventually with the Champions League. And the years went past and I did some MLS as well and, and bits and pieces of other properties for other broadcasters, but mostly for ESPN. But we got to 2009 and I was still working for ESPN. And it was only at that stage that the chance came to go back to the UK because ESPN, as you remember, was setting up in the UK. Satanta had hit financial troubles and ESPN stepped in. And so we moved back to, or I moved back to the UK. Beth had never lived in the UK prior to that. And we were there for really eight years altogether. And then in 2017, decided for family reasons, it was time to move back here. This house I'm talking to you from, we had never sold. We, we bought it the same year we got married in 1996. And I worked out in my mind that I was still able to do a lot of the work that I normally would do from here. It would involve a bit of traveling, but I could still do my Bundesliga world feeds going to Germany. I could do a lot of other things. And it was just the perfect solution. That was, of course, until there was a pandemic this year. And it's been difficult as somebody who normally travels. I haven't been able to travel since March, but on we go. That's the condensed version. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating story. Like, say, for, for a teenager first, let's, I mean, let's rhyme back that, for a teenager to be given the opportunity to 
work on BBC Scotland, like you said, that must be something, again, that's very, very rare, because mm. I aim, a lot of this podcast I do aim, one of my audiences is young people who are looking to become sports yeah. journalists, or commentators, and at 19 now, they'll only just be starting their university career, pretty much, yeah. to do what you want to do. I mean, obviously, I've, I've, I know the background of it, where you, you filled in, and, and you got given an opportunity, and you took it, that's kind of how it happened, but... That is so rare. That must have been like a huge honour for you to be able to, as a teenager, say, listen, I'm travelling to all these different countries as a, as a, as a broadcaster for the BBC. I mean, that's like the upper echelons. It must be something that you look back on now and quite proud of. Yeah, I mean, it literally was a dream come true. It was everything I'd ever thought about as a young person trying to be a broadcaster. Now, I'd been trying to be a broadcaster really you know, since I was about probably seven or eight, when you think about it, because wow. I still have tapes of myself from the 1974 World Cup. And then I used to carry my own tape recorder around and just commentate on games in the park or at school. So it was something I tried to, you know, do for a long time. And I worked for Hospital Radio in Aberdeen, covering the Aberdeen games. A certain fellow by the name of Ferguson, who's, you know, very popular in Liverpool, was the manager <laughs> of Aberdeen at that time. Um, but uh, no, I mean, it was great experience. What I didn't really know, Steve, was at that time I was giving myself this platform. I was, you know, giving myself this experience, this practical experience, but on an amateur basis, so that when the BBC took an interest in my work when I was 19. And you mentioned university. I was at university at the time studying German and politics. I was sort of in a way mentally ready for it, even though, you know, that might seem a bit of a surprise to many people. And, and even when I talk about it myself now and think back, you know, how could you be ready at 19? But I'd been doing these things all the time. It was my hobby. It was something I hoped to make a, a living from, but never expected. You know, I always thought, you know, in reality, I'll go into the, the languages field because I was a languages student. That's probably the likely course for me. And maybe I do a bit of broadcasting on the side. But here it was at 19 being presented as an option, a full-time career. And I went full-time with the BBC at the age of 19. And here we are several decades later. And I've been lucky enough to, to do it all that time. So yeah. sometimes you have to be lucky. You know, I think that there is that element when it comes to, to young people and, and looking for, for something like this. But you also have to be really dedicated. You have to really want it. And what I can say as a young person, again, looking back to that period in the late 80s, early 90s was, I probably had to give up quite a lot of my youth. You know, I probably had to give up doing what a lot of young people take for granted at the age of 20, 21, 22, because um, the job is a difficult one. And it involves working when other people are having fun. But I wouldn't change anything. No, absolutely. It's, it's a fascinating. You mentioned there you were studying German. Um, yeah. Is that kind of where, obviously, a lot of people who are listening to this, if anyone watches the Bundesliga, will know your voice predominantly. From in this side of, over this side of the pond, you're the voice we yeah. hear a lot of. Um, is that fascination with Germany always been something you've had? Because it seems like, obviously, being able to speak the language is a big help for you, but your knowledge of the Bundesliga, and I follow you on Twitter, is, is really high up there. Is that, is that fascination with Germany something you've had for a long time? Yeah, the two go hand in hand with me. And again, I sort of thank my lucky stars that I was born in, in Aberdeen. Now, why would you say that? Well, back in those days, we didn't have internet. We didn't have the ability to switch you know, 
on the computer and, and listen to languages or, or watch TV, listen to radio from another country. But what we did have was a radio signal going, if you can picture where Aberdeen is and you think about the North Sea, a radio signal going right across the North Sea to, to Hamburg. So we used to get the radio channel from Hamburg okay. straight into our, our homes on the radio. And as somebody who was learning German and really loved German, it was something that just spoke to me from, from the, the first day that I began studying it. And I think already um, the seed had been planted in 1974 at the World Cup. I remember watching that World Cup as a seven-year-old in West Germany, as it was, on TV and, and just saying to my dad all the time, you know, where, where's that city? Where's, where's uh, Frankfurt? Where's, um, where's Munich? You know, where are they all in relation to each other? What are they known for? And so it all sort of built up. But yeah, that's something that I think can grow with an interest in football is the interest in culture and the interest yeah. in geography and the interest in history and the interest, frankly, in other people. Because, you know, what is football if not the world game and the people's game? And I will say, when I first came to the USA, I, I said to a lot of American friends, you guys are missing out on the beauty of the sport because the one thing that we have with this sport that you don't really have with the American sports is we have this common language. So, you know, a Liverpudlian can talk to a Hungarian or an Argentinian and there will be something in common based on football. There will be some common experience that we, we might have nothing else in common, but we can talk about things that we've all watched and all remember and all chuckle at. And so that's really where it, it, it sort of hit with me as far as the German language was concerned, that here was a window into another culture that maybe other people didn't have. And I began to make it my ritual. I would listen to the radio. And of course, I quickly realized that I could actually listen to the Bundesliga on the radio. So as a young person, I was sitting in my, my house in Aberdeen. Um, listening to Bundesliga coverage, listening to the radio and improving my German. And at that stage, obviously, it was, you know, getting better and better. It wasn't fluent, but I could listen and understand. And, you know, I still in my mind go back to nights in Aberdeen where I listened to dramatic Bundesliga coverage and, and even sort of say, yeah, that was December 1980 or that was uh, March 1981, things like that. So, yeah, I do sort of come at it from that linguistic, cultural yeah historical perspective and it's really why the Bundesliga to this day remains very much dear to my heart. No, absolutely. You can, you can tell, you can tell you've got real passion for it when you're speaking this way. This might sound odd to you because you probably don't know this, but when I'm hearing you speak in English about German teams, your pronunciations of cities or player names, you can tell I think that adds something to your commentary. I mean, it's quite unique where I would say Frankfurt, where you will say Frankfurt because you, you know it. I think that that's quite unique. Is that something that is just, natural to you like that's how you pronounce it because of because of your background of growing up learning the language in that way yeah it's funny one or two people have asked me about that and uh, what i have to say is that for me it's almost an organic thing yeah, it yeah, would yeah. be like for example if you were to um if you were to you know take a, an area of liverpool or an area of of aberdeen where i'm from we say those areas in the way that we sort of grew up saying them now with with german as far as i'm concerned uh, you know, Frankfurt is what I think of when I think of that city. Leverkusen is what I think of when I go to yeah. Leverkusen. It would be odd for me to sort of say it in a, in a different way. And so I think it just comes from, from the language. Um, it's also part of sort of who I am as a commentator too, that I, I do yeah. believe very much in respect 
and respect for sounds and names and places. And as I say, I, with German, you, you get to the point with a language where if you're lucky enough to, to really have it in your, your soul, you begin sort of thinking and dreaming in that language. And, you know, there are times when, especially if I'm in Germany for a long period, you know, for maybe a three or four week period. And this happened to me when I was a young exchange student in Germany, too. Uh, there are times when you begin to actually dream in that language. And, and that might sound bizarre to people. How can you dream in another language? But that's sort of what it, I think, what it takes to really immerse yourself in a language. You have it almost as something that's part of you. And it's a question of flicking a switch. So that when I um, flick that switch to the Bundesliga, it's just organic for me to say, you know, Köln, Leverkusen, Stuttgart, rather than anglicizing it. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's fascinating. Like I say, it's, it, 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 like I say, it doesn't come across like force because. You, I, I'm not going to name names, but I've heard some commentators in the past where you can tell they're trying to force a, an accent or something, which is fine, but you can tell yours is more natural. Um, moving on, I, I want let's move from Germany, let's fly to America, what, what you do, the, yeah. the journey that you did. Um, ESPN obviously were, went big into the Premier League and they were really trying to promote it. And obviously, you were heading up that, or one of the people who headed up that. that you had a, a show with all the journalists and the, the ex-players and you had the commentary as well. Um just, I don't want to go too much, it's a big answer, but how is America adapting to the Premier League? How is it taken to? Because obviously they've got their own leagues and they've got access to every other league as well. Is the Premier League the number one over there? Because I'm not too sure how it works. Is it? Is it definitely Premier League is first? Oh, the Premier League amongst the European leagues in yeah. this country is by far number one. I will tell you, though, Steve, that the, the one aspect that probably goes unexplored by European media is that the most popular league to watch full stop in this country is the Mexican League. That's actually number one. Now, a lot of that has to do with culture and has to do with the fact that there are so many Mexican-Americans and also the fact that the games are on in prime time as opposed to in the morning predominantly for the Premier League here. But, um, yeah, it's worth bearing in mind. But, yes, certainly the Premier League, in comparison with the other European leagues, was ahead of the game as far as promotion, marketing, were concerned. I think you have to take the language into account on this one as well. I think the yeah. fact that there is a common language, I think the fact that it's English, even though it's, it's a different form of English in this country, as you know, and, and also in the UK. Uh, I think it was Churchill who once said, two nations divided by a common language. But um, certainly the, the Premier League has made terrific strides and it is the go-to league for a lot of people on a Saturday morning. I think we also have to give credit to NBC as broadcasters who have come in in recent years and really made it a very watchable package for people. And, you know, it starts early in the morning. It's actually quite a nice ritual. I know a lot of people go through this every week and it's probably, it's quite different in comparison with the UK. People get up early. They might have their breakfast around, you know, 6.30 in the morning. If they have a young family, they might have the young family around them and they watch the Premier League because the first game comes on at 7.30 in the morning Eastern time. And you pretty much have coverage all the way through until, you know, Certainly, until recent time, it's still about 2.30. But now with the later games coming in, sometimes 4.30. So, I mean, that is, is almost your whole day. And um, it does have a very loyal audience. I think we probably have to put it into perspective, though. We're not talking about an audience the like of which you would see for the big NFL games or for Major League Baseball playoffs or anything like that. So it's still a small growing audience, but it's a young audience. And it's one that is very much there. 
Yeah, is that something you're conscious of, Derek? Is that you're you're essentially not so much selling our game, but you're you know if you are trying to promote the game to America, because I I'm an NFL fan and it's flip reverse. I see yeah. yeah, I see NFL coverage and it's the way around. It's late at night, and you do get a conscious effort sometimes that there's a, there's a team there who are trying to sell the NFL to a new audience. Is that something you're you're conscious of that you are you know you you're up at a family gets up at seven a.m. and they turn TV on and they might they might just watch the soccer. Is that something you're conscious of that you know? They might not know their sorry their their level of knowledge might not be as high as say if you were commentating at a three pm English game you might have to talk in a certain way or present facts in a certain way or maybe introduce the people slightly different so I know who Jurgen Klopp is but a, a new audience in America doesn't so does that not really factor into your your role. I think it's a subtle framing rather than going all out and saying okay I'm talking to a different audience so I have to change the style of how I do it. I think I mean, it's interesting you use the, the NFL analogy. I got interested in the NFL when I was still living in the UK back in the 80s. And I got interested through listening to the American commentators, not dumbing it down for a British audience. Yes. So I sort of think the same applies. I think that it's more a question of emphasis when you're talking to the US. For example, if I, you know, it's little things. If I became aware that if I were broadcasting from... Um, you know, a, a, an English town, you know, say it were the FA Cup, an English town, and I realize it had a, a twinning arrangement with a town in, let's say, Missouri or Maine or New Hampshire, then maybe I'd make a little light remark about that. You know, that's a connection with the American audience. Obviously, if there's an American player, then you need to make sure you have all the facts at your fingertips about that American player. And, you know, maybe you mentioned that his, his dad and his mom are watching in, in California or something like yeah. that. But otherwise, I think you try to aim high and keep the bar high. That's just my philosophy. And, and just try to, to keep it hopefully intelligent and hopefully interesting and informative and entertaining. So uh, I know that there are some people who think you sort of totally rip it all up and, and go back to basics. But I think you would find now that, and this is just my assessment living here, that the people who are watching the Premier League on a Saturday are, are quite knowledgeable. You know, that they know their, their teams and they know who they support and they know why they support that team. And maybe with some of the smaller teams, they don't quite have the same knowledge. But that might be true in, in England as well nowadays. You know, maybe um, a Liverpool fan, you know, doesn't necessarily know Crystal Palace as well as, as he would know or she would know Manchester United. You know, not that I'm suggesting yeah. Liverpool fans want to know too much about Manchester United, but you know where I'm going with it. So, so I, think it's, um, I think it's subtle. I think it's knowing your audience. But, you know, I used to do the Champions League for years on ESPN for an American audience. And I really didn't change too much. You know, maybe I would explain a little bit more about things like history. And, uh, you know, I remember with Liverpool, I, I remember one of the things that I used to make a big point of was talking about the importance and the significance of a European night at Anfield, because I had lived that as a, as a young person, been lucky enough to do that. And there's no denying the fact that a European night at Anfield, this is going back to around sort of 2003, 2004, 2005. And then, of course, Istanbul, the Champions League win in 2005. There's no doubt that, that the, the residence of a European night was something that had to be explained to an American audience that wouldn't necessarily know. Now, now they know. Now, if they're watching the Champions League or if they're familiar at all with Liverpool Football Club, they, they would know that. So it's, yeah, as I say, it, it's just finding the right line for the right audience, but it's not radically, you know, doing anything different. Yeah, for sure. It makes sense. So you don't want to dumb it down too much. Um, in terms of 
career goals for a commentator, Derek. I mean, commentating on a World Cup must be, I mean, anyone's dreaming of it. Like you said, you're sitting, you're listening to radio in Aberdeen, that, that you're going to be commenting. I think you've done, is it four World Cups? Three, four World Cups? Uh, actually, I've been lucky enough to, to be involved in every one since 1990. So, in oh, right, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, was going to, I was reading before, but the, in terms of the commentary. So, that, that, is that... Is that the biggest honour you could get, like, to be asked? Because that is, you mentioned before, like, the difference between our football and maybe American football is that it is a global game. Every, you know, yeah. there's, there's, there's a guy in Chile tuning in to listen to you where that's not never going to happen in the NFL. Is that is that the biggest honour you've had in terms of your, your career that you've managed to be able to go to that many World Cups and and just do your job and watch all these different types of football? It must be, it must be fantastic. Yeah, it's a real privilege. You know, every time you're at a World Cup, you sort of think you've got to just stop and you're working hard and, you know, you're sometimes getting by on little sleep and sometimes not enough food because you're chasing here, there and everywhere trying to get to, to games and trying to talk to people and all the rest of it. Then you, you sort of stop just for a minute and think, you know, the number of people who would love to change places with you, you know, would love to, to be where you are. So, yeah, honour is a great word and it is an honour and a privilege. And as I said, um, as a commentator, I've I've been in involved in in most since 1990 and on a couple of occasions as an organizer for the world cup organizers in the usa and also for fifa as a press officer at the korea japan world cup in 2002 but otherwise as a commentator and um yeah that's you know that's what it is it's a special time and it's great to to see the same faces colleagues from other countries we mentioned earlier that sort of synergy with people from other countries. You bump into the same people from the same countries and, you know, here we go again. We're covering the World Cup again. The one goal I would have, uh, you know, and you can never uh, guarantee this will happen. You, you have to be lucky. I'm, I've covered all these World Cups. I've never actually commentated on a final at the World okay. Cup. I've been at the final. I've never commentated on the final. And again, that is in the hands of decision makers and, and they have to make those decisions. Um, you know, I'm certainly far from being ready to hang up my microphone. I'm in my early 50s, which I think is sort of middle age for most commentators. So hopefully there's still time. And uh, as I say, if, if I could do one thing between now and whenever the career ends, it would be to commentate on a World Cup final itself. We might need the USA to get to a final for you, Derek, and then maybe <laughs> your knowledge will come into it. Uh, you mentioned there, going back to, I, I always, again, I'm, it, it, I look at things slightly weird, maybe people think, but when I am watching a World Cup, as well as watching the football, I do think of the background, probably because of my media work as well. Yeah. That, I do wonder, it must be, is, it, is it as chaos as I imagine? Like you said, you're travelling from city to city, and you, you might be doing your prep while you're on an aeroplane, and you, you're not quite sure which team are going to be in that game because the, the, it's being played now while you're on, on a flight. Is it is it a bit hectic and a bit mad? Because it's it's from my pictures in my head, it does feel like it could be a little bit mental, if nothing else. No, it is. It is absolutely yeah. mad uh, from the moment it starts. In fact, you have the sort of the few days of calm before it gets underway. The trick really is to do most of your preparation, your your rudimentary preparation before a ball is even kicked. And I sort of spend about you know three weeks before a World Cup in a in a dark room somewhere just going over my basic prep because once it starts you it is literally a you know a mad dash from one game to another from one city to another and you don't really have that much time to breathe so you're you're 
you're trying to do all this prep and, and what you say is true on planes. You're sometimes squashed in on a middle seat on a plane. At least, you know, we were not, not nowadays doing things like that, but um, that's been my experience at every world cup and you are, you know, almost writing and imbibing for the whole time and, and, and doing that and just trying to, to make sure everything is ready in your brain for when the game comes along. And here's the thing that might surprise a lot of people when you're at a world cup, you actually see less of the football than you would watching at home because you are, yeah, you're traveling so much. So nowadays it's great. Most of the broadcasters that we work for will have um, a service. They'll have somebody who's charged with making sure that we can watch games, you know, after the fact, because that didn't used to be technically possible. You know, you might, um, you might be doing say Sweden in their third game, but you were traveling when they were playing their second game. And there was no real way because you're on the go all the time to actually look back at the second game. So you'd go on reports. Now somebody can send you a link to, to the game and you can sit and watch that sometimes on the plane and things like that. And that's very important. But um, you're right, when it gets to the second phase of the competition, because normally we have our assignments through the end of the group phase. And it's only obviously at the end of that group phase that decisions are made with regard to who's going to do which game because you don't know who's going to play whom at that stage until a certain point so then that becomes the next priority and you're always in your producers ears saying okay who have we got in the round of 16 which games might we have you know and can you give us an early idea because again it helps you it helps you just mentally prepare so this is the thing you go into a world cup um starting with the teams who you're covering you know you're going to cover but then you sort of expand it to who you think you might cover in the round of 16 and beyond. But it really means you have to prepare to a, a, a greater or smaller extent for every team in the tournament, knowing that at a couple of days' notice, you could end up having to do that team. It actually happened to me at the last World Cup. I wasn't supposed to do Saudi Arabia and Uruguay, but there was a change to the schedule um, during the group stage and uh, had two days to, to essentially expand on Saudi Arabia and Uruguay. I'd done some basic prep on both, but really had to get cramming for those two teams who I hadn't bargained for in terms of teams I was going to be commentating on. Imagine to sound a bit mental. I've got two more questions before I let you go, Derek. I don't want to keep you too long, but the, the first no one is you've been involved recently with Amazon Prime's coverage of yes. the Premier League over here. I mean, again, that's a relatively new service. I think a year or two old. Um, Obviously, the more that the more these platforms come, it's great for people in the media because there's more work. Like I say, there's more opportunities. Uh, again, when you're starting with some a new company or someone who's putting a new product on display, I mean, people make their minds up very, very quickly. You know, you could watch one game on Prime and think this isn't for me, or this is for me. I love it. Again, is that does does that feel any more pressure to you that you are essentially listen? Here's the here's what we're gonna do. I think at Prime showed it was it two match weeks in the Premier League last year. I think it was. Yeah. And one of them happened to be the Merseyside Derby. I remember watching it on Prime. Yeah. And I'm thinking, is that in your, are you conscious of that? And the whole team conscious, like, we need to get this right first time because, let's say, people's minds are going to be made up pretty quickly. Yeah, I think so. I think it was similar to what we went through at ESPN. Because if you remember, when ESPN came on the scene, you know, an American broadcaster, unknown really in the UK, very well established in the USA. And there were a lot of eyeballs on that. And similar story with prime video coming into the market uh, but what i would say about both prime video and espn is they hired some of the very best in terms of yeah. producers and directors and you know behind the scenes people who were making it all happen so even though these things had the prime name or the espn name on them they were being 
looked after by people behind the scenes whose names are not household names in the UK, but have been doing this for a long, long time. And I think the same with commentators and with presenters. If you watch Prime Video, it was a lot of, you know, well-known faces and, and well-known names. But yeah, I think there's always that adrenaline the first night. And I was at Wolves the, the very first night. I came back to the UK to do Wolves against West Ham, that, that first uh, Prime Video midweek. And, you know, it was great fun. And I think you just got to tell yourself, yeah, there's pressure here because we're all trying to get this right and we all want to... To, to you know leave a good impression with the viewers but then you've got to tell yourself you know i've done this before this is not the the first time behind the microphone so relax and have fun and do your thing yeah absolutely I can imagine. the final question i'm going to leave you before we go Derek. um you've been involved recently in the in the fifa video games um, yes so commentary for both of those what is that like for you because i can imagine your job is to watch something and react to it where this is a whole different world because you are essentially being told scripted words or you've been asked what to say i know and put your spin on it is it just is it absolutely chalk and cheese compared to your your real day job of commentary because it, it seems to me like although it's your voice that's speaking it's, it's a completely different process and as i say you're, you're not reacting you are essentially it's almost script reading acting almost is, is that fair to say um I don't know if it's acting. I think it's, it's a different process for certain because we're not doing live commentary on what we're seeing. But it's a lot of the same skills because obviously what EA Sports, and, and you know, I'm, I'm honored to be part of the EA Sports series, such an iconic game that FIFA yeah, is. Yeah. But what EA Sports strive for is to have it sound as close as possible to how we would sound during a game. So... What it does, it sort of forces you actually in a good way to, to look at your technique and how you cover certain moments and what you would organically say, because that's what they want. Uh, it's not a script as such. It's sort of a, a guideline in terms of, okay, here's a, a context that pops up in the game and here's you know, your scope to say what you might say. Now, that, that could be you know, 15 or 16 different versions of that. And you've got to sort of rack your brain to think, okay, would I say that? Would I not say that? You know, how would I, how would I use my, my language to try to sum this situation up? Uh, I, I, to be honest with you, I love it. I love every day that I collaborate with, with EA Sports. I have a big smile on my face when I go in, same when I leave. And, you know, it's mentally quite challenging and vocally quite challenging too because you're at it for several hours a day. But it's, it's worth it when the finished product comes out and then, you play it back, or I tend to actually watch other people playing the game who are far better at it than I am. <laughs> but um, but when I do that, I sort of think, okay, oh, yeah, there's that line that we that we put in. There's that line that we didn't think we were going to put in that maybe we added at the last second and things like that. And uh, it's very much a team effort. And and I love collaborations like that where you're working with a, a really good producer, really good sound engineer, and of course Lee Dixon, who's my my co-commentator on it. And, you know, we, we have fun while, you know, working really hard and trying to make it as good as it can be. And as I said, I'm, I'm just honored that, uh, that I, I'm, I'm part of that. And um, on we go. Is it difficult, Derek, to, like say, on that game, someone scores a goal and you're not, you have to, your commentary is usually natural. You see a goal and you react. Is that, you're, you're almost having to, you're not seeing a goal, but you know that a goal's been scored in the game. Is it hard for you to, reach the same levels of emotion and because it, it's I mean video game has come on so far like if you from 15 years ago I think you could tell it was a bit robotic where now I mean you can it looks it looks and sounds like a, a genuine game is that yeah. something you like is, is that is that difficult for you because like I say it's it's almost like watching a game on highlights where you know what's going to happen you're not it's not natural it's not it's not 
and emotive feeling. It is very much like you have to not so much put it on, but you've got to try and think, ah, I would say this and here's how I would do it and then perform it almost. It, it does sound like it would be quite tricky. Yeah, I mean, it, obviously in a game as well, if you think about it, in the course of a, a normal game, you might have, you know, average of what two or three goals and some, you know, some goals are bigger than others. Some are more routine goals. But if you think about it for a video game, you have to use your voice in a more punishing way, if you like, because yeah, yeah. if you think about the number of different goals that you hear, if you play FIFA, then, you know, think about the cover data who has to, to produce those goals, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we're, we're very careful about, you know, how long we spend on high energy moments like that because it can ruin the voice very quickly imagine if you were doing sort of you know 40 of 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 them in a row your voice would go quite quickly um so yeah i I mean that's the difficult part of it is that you're visualizing everything when i voice the game i'm not watching anybody playing the game i'm visualizing so i'm thinking about you know the instructions might be yeah you know it's 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 an a an amazing goal might just be an amazing, you know, one of the goals of the season kind of thing. And then I've got to come up with words and a, fe- you know, it's a feeling almost more than it is the words. It's the feeling in your voice that this is something really big. And of course, ultimately I don't have control over when it's used and where it's used. Um, you know, I sometimes hear from people on social media saying, you know, why did you, why did you say that? And I sort of reply saying, well, I, I'm sorry, but I wasn't, wasn't in your living room <laughs> <laughs> performing it on key for you when, when I did yeah, it. Yeah. You know? I um, yeah, I but uh, honestly, Steve, it, it, it really is great fun. And um, as I say, I, I can't wait for the new game to come out, which will be soon. Absolutely. I, I, I think I lied to you before that, because I've got one more question, if you don't mind. Um, no problem. No problem sorry, at all. Sorry. Um, I always ask it, try and end with it. If you've got any tips or advice for someone who wants to be a commentator or wants to get into broadcast media, I think, like, is there anything, just one or two little tidbits that you could say to someone, right, I suggest you do this because it might open doors or it, it could help you get better at your profession? Is there anything that you asked? I imagine there's something you asked quite a bit, but are there anything that you could pass on or pass along? Yeah, very happy to pass on some advice on that front. I think the main thing is work hard and realize that you really have to love it. You know, if you want to be a broadcaster covering football, you know, it sounds like a dream job to most people, but it's hard work. And you have to be prepared to put in the hard work and the hours and the sort of the unglamorous, you know, work. I mean, I spent yesterday going over every Bundesliga team, or actually only two of the 18, because I'm doing sort of two every day, fine detail, things like that. You know, that, these are the sort of things you have to do and you have to find time to do them. And again, it sounds, oh, wonderful. I get to think about football 24 hours a day, but it's a job and you have to sort of set high standards for yourself. I think the other thing is um, work on the voice. That's what I say to people. And, and again, most people sort of think you just, you know, start shouting. I will say it's not really a job of shouting. It's a job of using your voice the way um, a singer might use his or her voice. And that means protecting the voice at times. That means that, you know, when it's very tempting to go out with your pals and, and have a, have a you know, night on the beers and things like that. As a commentator, you often have to say, no, I'm not going to do that because I have three games coming up in four days and this voice has to be ready for it, you know? And, and it, can't, it can't be all husky and, and I can't not hit the high notes because I decided to, to go and enjoy myself for, for, you know, a couple of nights in a row. So it's considerations like that. But to cut a long story short, if you really want to get into it you have to believe in yourself you have to be prepared for rejection and above all you have to really work hard 
Brilliant. Uh, thanks so much for your time. You've been very generous with your time. So I'll let, I'll let you go there, get back to getting your house renovated over in Boston. Yeah. I know that's what's yeah. on the cards for you today. No, it's a, good, it's a good thing that we did it now because the, the hammering and the sawing is probably going to start in the next 20 minutes. So, yeah, uh, so yeah good timing, Steve. Thanks, Dave. Thanks so much. Uh, that has been the latest edition of the Sporting Voices podcast. And we'll be back with another famous voice or name from the world of sports media very shortly. Until then, goodbye.